Coming up this hour, we're going to tackle some headlines, and then we're joined by Gordon Smith, author of the new book, Wisdom from Babylon. You're listening to The Common Good. Everyone, happy whatever day it is today. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. We're so glad that you are here with us. And uh, before we jump in to this marathon of headlines I have prepared for us, Brian Fromm, scale of 1 to 37, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm, I'm a solid 31 today, I think. Yeah, wow. it's a good day. I'm, okay. I am doing okay today. I had a good, very productive morning at the church. I know people, I think most people know you and I juggle two jobs in our lives. And so I uh, had a great morning at the church, came home, had lunch with my family, and now doing the doing the show. So, no, it's been a great day. How about you? How's your day going? Hey, what was the no part? Why did you say no? No, it's been a great day. It's I don't think I said I said so. It's been a great day. I think I said so. So it's been a great nah, day. Nah, we're yeah. going to play back that tape. Anyway, <laughs> you're going to get me. I don't think we have the technology right now to do that. How uh, is the basement? How's the, how's the basement today? Oh, glib. It is real <laughs> uh, dank, as they say. And the light on my little uh, my little lamp on the desk, which is the only bright spot in this entire basement, just went out. So oh, no. <laughs> even, even darker. It just feels like... Like a really sad 80s metal music video in the basement. Uh, That's what it feels like. But enough, awesome. enough about me. We got some headlines and uh, yep. par for the course. I'm going to let you choose which one we tackle first. Yeah, and I'm kind of glad you didn't choose the uh, the other election going on in Georgia today. I've had I've had enough of the politics as of late, but uh, I did want to start here uh, from the Christian uh, Christian News. Now, a sheriff said that this past Sunday a pastor was killed and two hurt in a shooting at a Texas church, and the story's kind of crazy. Uh, a, a fugitive had gotten inside the church and kind of hiding out in there, and then the pastor came in uh, and confronted him, and he was shot and killed. And so, just a again. And not starting on a completely downer note, but I, I read this this past week and went, oh, man, that's that's just sad because we all, you know, as a pastor, I'm always the first one to our church on Sunday. And you have these thoughts about, you know, these kinds of thoughts. And so uh, prayers out to that family and that church down in Marshall, Texas, Starville uh, Methodist Church, just a just a tragedy. And, and you want to be praying for uh, for those families and for that church. Yeah, absolutely. I, you did say something, though. Are you always the first person there on Sundays? Uh, not always. I'm usually the first person there at church. I, part of the reason is I don't know how you are, uh, but it, it has more to do with I don't sleep great on Saturdays when I'm preaching the next day in church. Yeah. I, I tend to get up really early and then I just go. You know what yeah, I mean? So I don't I have that. to be the first one there, but I tend to be the first one. Sort there. of like ah, I'm up already. So I might as well. Exactly. All right, so exactly. Let's, let's talk about this uh, Pelosi McConnell news that uh, everyone's been talking about. Yeah, both uh, Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell's homes were vandalized after Congress failed to approve the $2,000 stimulus checks. Uh, McConnell said he and his wife were not intimidated, but, quote, hope our neighbors in Louisville aren't too inconvenienced by this radical tantrum. Uh, And so you've been seeing this. Uh, Even today, Josh Hawley claimed that something happened at his house, although authorities are disputing that. Um, But, yeah, to have this vandalism to these um, and written on the doors were where's my money and Mitch kills the poor. And I I think what this kind of says to us is, uh, A, it's sad. You don't want to see this type of thing, regardless of your politics or what you think of these politicians. Uh, There was even a pig's head and fake blood and all this other stuff. I think it just speaks to uh, the the tension and the anger and and how people are feeling right now. Mm-hmm. And while 99.9% of the people probably wouldn't act upon it, uh, 
I suspect there's some people who say good. You know, they, they're glad because they're equally as angry. I don't think this is a good idea. I think this is uh, th- this type of stuff is always counterproductive and destructive. But uh, I, I think it, again, just kind of signals the, the frustration and the tension and, and just, yeah, the anger that many people are feeling right now. You heard it here first, folks. Brian Fromm is against pig head vandalism. <laughs> I know that In most situations. A lot, a lot of you are probably on the fence where Brian was going to go with that one, but he has he has made the record that was very the, clear. I, if you go to my church, you just got a glimpse into this week's sermon. It was all about pig head. Uh. <laughs> oh, you guys are in Leviticus. Nice. Okay. Yes. So uh, the other thing I hear a lot of people talking about is this amen, a woman. Uh, I don't want to call it a scandal. It's not really news either. What do you, would you call this? Talking point? It's your word. It's a kerfuffle. (laughs) How is that my word? (laughs) Haven't you used that? You used that the other day. And I was like, man, I haven't heard anyone use Uh, the word kerfuffle. I I use curmudgeon a fair amount, but I don't think kerfuffle. Okay. Okay. Well, I would I would claim this to be a kerfuffle. Yeah, as you said, uh, Representative Emanuel Cleaver, a Democrat from Missouri, he's also an ordained United Methodist uh, pastor, and he opened the Congress with a prayer on Sunday. And in closing, and uh, you've probably seen this online, uh, yeah. he turned many heads when he finished his prayer by saying "Amen" and "A woman," and uh, it's just I don't. The first time I heard it, I don't think this is actually the case, but the first time I heard it, I thought to myself, was that just like a really poor attempted humor? Like, was that just a a bad humor? But I don't think strange time for humor. That's what I thought. That was kind of my follow-up thought. But my my first thought was that, but uh, he ended his prayer in the name of the monotheistic God, uh, but also included other gods. And then he closed with a men and a women, which likely it says here was an effort to make the prayer more gender inclusive. And what many people, and you could help our people understand is uh, a men is not a men or a man, but it's Hebrew right. uh, for truly or verily. And uh, it's not a gender thing. And that's what many people were pointing out after this. Yeah. I don't. Is there any other like big takeaway from this one? It's something that I, as soon as I saw it, I thought, oh, we're going to have to talk about this on the show. I just don't know I that know. I have much to say about this particular instance other than that's <laughs> it's a Hebrew word and it's not gendered at all. So I saw a lot that of might be the only takeaway. Yeah, because right. maybe people don't know that. Maybe people yeah. have grown up praying and they go, are we saying a man at the end? And nope, that's not what you're saying. And But other than that, I don't think this is some grand signal of a crumbling culture uh, or any of these major pronouncements people are trying to make. But uh, it was certainly strange. All right. So we got two more here. We haven't talked Cuomo in a while. Do you want to go there? Governor Cuomo of New York, he quotes scripture, says he won't take the COVID-19 vaccine until it's available to minorities. Uh, He recently asserted that he will not take it until it's distributed to black, Hispanic and poor communities. And he used scripture uh, about the first being last and the last being first. And and I think there's uh, this is to be admired. Uh, But I would also say that I I don't know. New York has a big deal right now where they're not vaccinating the most. um, They're not prioritizing the most vulnerable, that being the nursing homes and others. Uh, And so I think I I appreciate him saying I'm going to wait until the people who are most likely to get it last get it before I get it. I think that's really admirable uh, and is good leadership. I would just also kind of wish there was just a story today I was reading where New York is doing about as bad a job as possible as getting people vaccinated who are in nursing homes. And hopefully they take care of that uh, before anything, because as we've seen throughout COVID, uh, it's the nursing homes that are causing uh, the greatest danger right now. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a it's a complicated conversation, as we've said from the beginning. I would I'd be curious to know what people think not only about the decision, but him quoting scripture. I know people have strong opinions about Cuomo in the first place, mm-hmm. kind of in light of some of these other headlines. But uh, a topic that we tackle a lot on this show, Brian, are dance floors, and that's how I wanted to end this segment <laughs> with some some dance floor archaeology news. Take it away. Yeah, the the dance floor. I love this article. The dance floor where John the Baptist was condemned to death was discovered, an archaeologist said. It says, archaeologists claim they've identified the deadly dance floor where John the Baptist was sentenced to death around AD 29. Uh, and it, anyway, we'll put this up on our Facebook page because it's a fascinating story. I find archaeologists fascinating and what they find. Uh, but as many people were pointing out, uh, this does this just prove that the Baptists are right being against dancing? Is this where it comes? from as to why so many Baptists are against dancing. I do wonder. Maybe we should uh, – that's a segment for a, a never date. Anyway, <laughs> all those headlines, like always, are posted on our Facebook page. We would love to know what you think, and you can weigh in in the comments or send us a private message. Coming up next, though, author of the new book, Wisdom from Babylon, professor and author Gordon Smith will be joining us here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. So Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm, and we're thrilled to have on the show for two segments, Gordon Smith, welcome to the show, sir. Uh, my pleasure. Good to be with you. Likewise. Would, would you just take a, a minute or two and introduce yourself to everybody? Happy to do so. I'm uh, Gordon Smith. Obviously, I serve as the president of a small private Christian university in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. I am a Canadian, <laughs> uh, married to Joella. She's an artist by... Um, my un- the undercurrent, you might say, of my work is that I'm a theologian, and much of the work that I've published has been around themes of the Christian life and what that means. But it was fun recently to take on a challenge of asking the question, what does it mean to be Christian hmm. in a post-Christian secular society? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and to do so in a way, I hope, that is engaging with, uh, with your readership, with your listenership. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're really grateful for you joining us. Before we jump into your book, which is Wisdom from Babylon, that we're really excited to talk to you about, uh, I did want to take a chance as a president, you said, of Ambrose University uh, up in Canada. What's it been like, uh, especially during this pandemic time, to lead a college? And uh, what are things like up in Canada, different from here? But really curious just what it's been like to lead a college through this. Uh, that's a fair question. And of course, what it reminds us of is that sometimes you, th- you hear about five years strategic plans and uh, things like a pandemic that maybe we should have seen coming, but we did not. I remember the surprise that I had in mid-March when we agreed we're going to shut things down. I have been thrilled with the way the faculty and the student body have responded. But at the same time, I'm, I'm, I'm struck by their, by their, you know, Zoom fatigue uh, mm-hmm. is a phrase that's now part of our, our lexicon, part that's of right. our language, and how there's a textured side to higher education that is missing right now. So I'm thrilled with how we've responded. Our constituency has been great. We've upgraded all of our IT capacities. Uh, but there's things that are uh, indispensable, I think, to what it means to be a community of learning that I hope we don't have to go too much longer before they can be restored. Yeah. yeah. But our, our enrollment's good. Our students are engaged. They're good sports. They know how to wear masks when you have to wear masks. Mm-hmm. And I've uh, been very grateful for that. That's wonderful. Now, uh, Brian just mentioned that you wrote a book. You've written numerous books, but I'd love for you to tell us about the most recent book. What's it called? Why did you write it? What's sort of your hope? Uh, Give us a 30,000-foot perspective on this book. 
Sure. Um, the observation that the book makes, um, an extended observation, is that North American society is now increasingly secular and has been. I mean, I actually opened with a reference to Bob Dylan's great tune, The Times They Are Changing, published mm -hmm. in 1963, um, and suggested that was prophetic, that indeed the times have changed. We live in a world now where the church or the Christian community is a minority presence. And I asked the question, how do we respond to that? Um, and we can either, uh, it seems to me, we can either resist it and fight it uh, and insist that the Christian voice continues to be privileged, or we can ask uh, instead, could it be that this is providential and that we then need to ask, well, then what does it mean to be the church as a minority presence uh, because we don't longer have that privileged voice. What does it mean to be a minority presence? And the point, of course, that I want to make is that the church not only can flourish, but is called to flourish in such a time. The language wisdom from Babylon, uh, it evokes the Old Testament prophets who were writing, of course, to the people who were in Babylon in exile, a minority presence. But it actually arises from 1 Peter, who writes to the church that are the diaspora, and he speaks of them as aliens, as foreigners, and so on. And so to ask, what is the wisdom that the church can appropriate in such a time as this in um, uh, and embrace rather than resist? So there's no doubt that part of what I'm doing is pushing back gently against the culture wars approach to responding to our society, hmm. and instead asking, rather than retreat and fight, what does it mean to build bridges? What does it mean to open up opportunities? What does it mean for the church to flourish in such a time as this? Hmm. Yeah, and, and you just touched on it there, but I, I would love for you to talk a little bit more about how would you assess how the church is doing now uh, in how it's reacting, as you say, to being a part of the minority? Um, well, you know, I don't want to make a general comment because I think uh, – some, I think some churches live in a bit of a bubble, and I want to say, are you aware of your society? That is, they are almost like um, they're, they're in an escape from the world, and so mm -hmm. Sunday morning really does not engage our society and our culture. I think others uh, are in retreat mode. Um, so I think of those that have argued that the church needs to reestablish the kind of the monastic movement. Some have chosen the culture wars, and there's no doubt I live in a – I live within a – a uh, religious subculture that has chosen to be very adversarial towards our society hmm. and very angry that we no longer say the Lord's Prayer at City Hall. Hmm. And I want to say, well, there are some who are saying we live now in a pluralist society. Uh, and rather than this being a problem, it could be a great opportunity. Hmm. So this morning, earlier today, I'm talking to a pastor who probably in, in, in any given week, probably he has more contact with Muslims in the city of Edmonton, Alberta, mm. than many missionaries would have in a lifetime. He has them in a week. Mm. And it really is the pluralist secular society that opens up those kinds of opportunities. And for him, this is not a problem. This is a great opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I'm hoping that my book can encourage more of those kinds of uh, viewing society through that lens. Yeah, it, it does seem, too, that when you look at even the history of Israel, that it's actually when Israel becomes like most 
stable and secure and established that they get in the most trouble, but that when they're like you're saying in, in the minority or they're, you know, finding that they're in exile or they're wandering, that seems to often be where God does his most profound work. Is there anything that you're seeing from your own research and writing to apply to like this specific moment that we're in now, especially with, with a pandemic and people feeling maybe more scattered or more displaced than ever before? Yeah. Well, I think what is so very noteworthy, and I end the book on this theme, is that whenever we get unsettled like this, what it does is it raises the anxiety level. And when the anxiety level goes up, we become less – well, our faith is weaker, and our engagement with our society is weaker. Hmm. So yes, what a a pandemic shows us is our vulnerabilities, and especially our vulnerabilities around matters of – Uh, our anxiety and our deep faith in God and the capacity of God to do what God is doing. So I reference, for example, the language of Isaiah 43. You will go through the waters, but you will not be overcome. You will go through the fire, but you will not be burned. Why? Because I'm going with you. Hmm. So here we go. Here we go. Rather than resisting it, here we go. And to actually say um, with the prophet Jeremiah, that he says to the people of Judah in Babylon, seek the peace of the city to which I have sent you. Wow, that's that changes everything. Okay, so this may be providential. And maybe God is trying to teach the church of this generation something. Well, rather than missing it, let's embrace it. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, help uh, with the last minute or two we have left here, Gordon. How would uh, a pastor or people part of a church even assess that we're in kind of a bubble, that we're living in one of these Christian bubbles, removing ourselves? What are some indicators that they would go, oh, okay, yeah, we are kind of bubbled off from our culture? Um, Wow, that's a good question. Um, Where to start? I think uh, there's so many things that I think I I would say to somebody, if you attend a church on a Sunday morning and you sit in the back row and you're taking notes, what would you look for? First of all, are they aware of the deep pain and fragmentation of our world? The prophets were masters Hmm. of lament. Hmm. Secondly, are they empowering people to be in the world? That is, are they empowering people in the arts and education? Are they actually uh, referencing the world that they're going to be going to, or are they escapists from the world? So the theme of lament and then the theme of empowerment for being in the world, I think would be two of the things that uh, right from the start, I think of uh, right from the top uh, would be indicators for me that we are – that we are engaged in our world appropriately. Professor and author Gordon Smith, who wrote the book Wisdom from Babylon, which I think is a brilliant title, and it does really raise the obvious question. Okay, so what is the wisdom from Babylon? What, where, where should we be drawing wisdom from those experiences in the modern age? Well, the, the title of the book is taken from First Peter and from the wisdom of the prophets of the Old Testament. There's no doubt when I was a seminary student back in the 70s, we really privileged Paul and the Gospel of John and the Gospel of Luke in our studies. But we very we did spend very little time with the Old Testament prophets. Mm. And I would suggest that now more than ever, the church needs to recover a lot more preaching and teaching from the prophets. They, they are going to be our guides through this time. Mm. Another important source, it seems to me, is the historic minority churches. So much of what I write in this book, I've learned from the church in Lebanon, the church in Egypt, the church in Pakistan, the church in Japan, uh, India, China. These, these have always been minority churches, and the churches have flourished. Now they become our teachers. 
and to ask uh, how those can be sources to us. And then another important source, it seems to me, is the church in Western Europe that has been in a secular mode much longer than we have. So I lean into voices like Leslie Newbegin, uh, Jacques Ellul, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who back in the 30s were describing a situation in England, France, Germany, that we are facing now. And so we can learn from them who have gone through these waters before us. Mm. Uh, and Gordon, something we see, especially down here in the States, as like you say, uh, our culture is becoming more and more secular, is kind of this fight for religious freedom, our fight for our rights. There's a lot of uh, a standing up and let's fight. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Just the church and Christians fight for, for what are our rights and, and maybe what effect that has on the culture that's around us? Well, we get ourselves, yeah, no, that's a good, important question. We get ourselves in an adversarial posture. I have a sister-in-law who just assumes the church is angry. They're angry about mm. everything. Hmm. And I just think, well, no, we're not. Uh, well, she says, that's how I experience you. Um, the, we, 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 when we position ourselves as perpetually in an adversarial posture, I think we lose the kinds of bridges and connection points that we need to make to be exemplars and spokespersons of the gospel. And so... Peter says to his hearers, be ready to give an answer. And then he adds this with reverence, with gentleness, mm -hmm. that that needs to be our posture towards our society. Mm -hmm. And as much as anything, it seems to me, we need to defend the rights of others, not just our own rights. Mm -hmm. That is, we're not just looking out for us and our well-being. And therefore, I do argue in, in the book that I think we need to insist that the United States and Canada are pluralist societies and I fight, I, I push back then against secularism as an ideology and affirm secularity as a posture hmm. that allows for diversity of opinion, including the religious voice and including the Christian voice. Hmm. But I don't think we should be fighting anymore to make the Christian voice the privileged voice. Hmm. That's really well said. It's something that Brian and I have unfortunately tackled on the show a lot when we see you know celebrity pastors fall and the problem with some of the, sort of the celebrity culture. And in your book, you're really kind of making a case for, for some of these things to happen from the margins and the uh, in the West, that's not really been something that a lot of pastors and churches have. Uh, it seemed like gone after intentionally. So, right. and I'm curious what, what, what role you see technology and social media playing in all of this? Wow. Yeah. Much of my, um, and I'm probably naive on that question, but much of my learning has been to ask pastors and I've used Lebanon as my primary source how have you how have you managed and you've thrived with joy as a minority presence in a chaotic society like Lebanon with a huge Muslim presence, even through the midst of a civil war? Um, and so much of it has to do with patience, winsomeness, connections, uh, yeah. meals, having meals, keeping connected with other people, uh, showing hospitality to other people of other traditions. But I'm not, I, I don't, I confess, I'm not nearly as savvy as I probably need to be when it comes to social media. Yeah. And so, Gordon, looking ahead, uh, maybe how do you see the Church of North America changing in the years coming forward? And, and maybe, maybe it's the same answer, but how do you hope to see the church change going forward? Sure. Uh, well, we start with that posture, but where, where, and I really value the conversations I've had both in person as well as with authors who are using the phrase, uh, uh, what does it mean to be an alternate kind of community? And what does, the mean, what does it mean for the church, to use the language of Leslie Newbegin, to be an embodiment or hermeneutic of the gospel? 
That is, we become the embodiment. This is what the gospel looks like when a people actually embrace and, and, and live the gospelized life. Um, and so in the book, I talk about the church as a worshiping community, the church as a teaching learning community, and the church as a missional community. And right. in each one of those, talk about well, what does that look like to be a worshiping community that is actually a minority presence and thriving as such, but the outcome of that is that a distinctive community is formed that isn't secularized. And here's where Jamie Smith, in his books, um, you love to, to know what you know, you, you become what you love is his language. Right. He argues, and I think rightly so, that many times the church has taken on the secular mindset, even as it responds to secularism. Hmm. So what does it mean to be distinctly Christian, I think is one of the key questions we're going to ask. And in that process, rethink what it means to be the church. So there's a phrase you keep using that I, I think is really fascinating that you talk about a minority position. And I'm wondering, you know, cause Brian and I are, are two white men pastoring in the suburbs. And we've tried to be really mindful of our, our own posture, our own framework, our own worldview. Is there, is there a wisdom do you think in sitting at the feet of and learning from people who have maybe been in minority spaces for a long time to learn like, okay, this is the new age that we're in, or yeah. this is the future that we yeah. see. What can we learn from people who have maybe already walked a mile in those shoes? Do you think there's some wisdom in that at all? For sure. So for example, my, when you asked what are the indicators of a church that I said, well, one indication is we know how to do lament. The mm -hmm. fact of the matter is uh, in my church where I worship, it's happy clappy. We do not know how to do lament, as, and it's a white suburban church. We do not know how to do lament. Where are we going to go to learn lament? Well, in North America, we need to probably go to our African-American friends, colleagues, brothers, and sisters. They know how to do lament, and they can teach us how to do lament. Uh, what does it mean to be gracious and not resentful? In my world, it tends to be uh, First Nations or uh, Native Americans in your context, but these indigenous leaders and indigenous elders have such a grace and a winsomeness, even though they have been, in many respects, a persecuted people, but they don't posture themselves as victims. They don't posture themselves as on the defensive, and I want to learn from them. I want to I learn that kind of disposition of heart. Um, so that's where in, in North America, those have been communities where, yeah, same here. I'm a white, Ang you know, Euro a white male of European descent. Hmm. Uh, that's um, that that requires that I at least live conscious of the uh, how do I put it? The, the the propensity towards white privilege. I need to name it, hmm. acknowledge hmm. it and know that as a white male with gray hair, I get certain kind of under, there's certain things that are just given to me that are not given hmm. to my black, indigenous, even Asian uh, colleagues and friends. And to at least acknowledge that, they would value that I acknowledge it and then start to learn from them how I respond to my context. That's great. Well, Gordon, we're so thrilled that you've joined us. Where could people read more? It's other stuff you've written or where can they pick up your book? Why don't you give us all the places we can find you? Uh, well, I have a son who doesn't want us to buy from Amazon anymore, so he's <laughs> he's big on the not Amazon.com, whatever it is, but there's no doubt about it that all of my stuff is available on Amazon. And hey, when they do books, they do them very well. Abe, I'm a big supporter of Abe Books if you want used books, uh, but you can also get the books uh, directly from the publisher from IV Press. And uh, most of my recent publications have been with InterVarsity. I've really enjoyed working with them. 
with the editors there. And, you know, in the opening, you talked about uh, the title, Wisdom from Babylon. Well, for that one, I'm actually grateful to John Boyd. He's the editor. He pushed back against my original proposal and said, here's a better title. And I, I think he's right. <laughs> That's <laughs> wonderful. Our guest today has been Gordon Smith. He's professor and author of the new book, Wisdom from, from Babylon. You can also learn more at gordontsmith.com. Brother, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. My pleasure. Thank you, gentlemen. Absolutely. My pleasure. And you're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. So one of the things we try to do with the show is to not only talk about uh, church news or kind of church pastoral perspectives. And every once in a while I stumble across something that to me just makes good leadership sense. And I do tend to agree with John Maxwell who said, uh, if you have influence, you're a leader. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, whether you're a teacher or an executive or a pastor or a parent or any, anything in between, you're leading someone or something in some capacity. And I think Simon Sinek over the years has – he's got a lot of gems. I don't know that I've ever – I mean I've watched TED Talks, but nothing nothing much longer than that. But every once in a while, these like minute, minute and a half gems sort of come across my screen and I think, ah, that's that's pretty solid. That's said in a way that's a little – a little unique from what I've heard. So he, he gave this uh, – this is a short excerpt where he's talking about cell phones and being like fully present with people, which I know like right now looks much different than it did a year ago. But it, it still is I, I think a really, really important thing, especially as people are getting vaccinated, as we're talking about you know plans for the future. So I wanted to take just a minute and a half or so and listen to Simon Sinek and then Brian and I will respond. Okay. There is a subconscious reaction to these devices when we use them. Okay? What if I were to hold my phone while I'm talking to you? I'm not checking it. It's not buzzing. It's not beeping. I'm not even, I'm nothing. I'm just holding it. Do you feel at this moment that you are the most important thing to me right now? No, you do not. Because there is a subconscious reaction we have to the device. When it is out, it makes the people around us feel that they are less important. So when we're walking down the halls in our offices and somebody says, hey, boss, can I ask you a question? You go, sure, what's on your mind? We've just told them they're not that important. Or we can go, sure, what's on your mind? And if you don't have a pocket, find a shelf, put it on the shelf, come back and say, sure, what's on your mind? When we show up to a meeting or a lunch or a dinner with our colleagues, our clients, or our friends, or our families, and we put the phone on the table, we have announced to everyone in the room that they are not that important to us. And by the way, putting the phone upside down is not more polite. (laughs) My favorite one is in the meeting or at a lunch with someone that the phone will ring and the caller ID will pop up and they will go, I'm not going to get it. Oh, so magnanimous. Oh, I'm lucky to eat with you today. All right, Brian. So I I don't even know if you're a Simon Sinek fan or not, but uh, what did you think about what he had to say? Yeah, the first word that comes to mind for me was convicting, uh, because uh, this is something that I don't think I do well, because oftentimes I will be like, well, I'm not on my phone while I'm talking to you, but I'll have it, like he said, in my hand or on Uh the desk in front of me, or it dings. And I take that one, you know, that two second look down that the other person sees me do. Uh, And and the really convicting one in that was as he talked about, you know, don't do it at the dinner table or with 
your family. And I think this overall point that when you hold your phone or when you look at your phone uh, while talking to somebody else or while with somebody else, that it conveys you're not that important to me. Yeah. Uh, you're, I'm not really invested here. Uh, I think that takes it to a whole nother level because a lot of times we speak of this as like, hey, man, it's rude to look at your phone during dinner or while you're in a meeting or it's just kind of, you know, it's just kind of rude. Uh, but him here placing it like, no, 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 you're you're telling the person that you are talking to or eating with or whatever, you're conveying something about their value to you, I think takes this to a whole nother level. I find that super convicting because I know how many times I do this to my wife, to my kids, uh, to people at church, never intentionally like, oh, I don't want you to think I think highly of you. Uh, but knowing that that's the result of it, man, I, I do. I find this really convicting and really something for us to really, uh, I think, as individuals, we, we really need to wrestle with. Yeah, one of the words that you just used that I think is important when people say, oh, I, well, I didn't do it intentionally. I'm like, that's that is the point, though. L- leaders are intentional about what they're communicating, you know whether it's at home with your family, with your team, with your congregation, whatever your, your position is. And I think what you couldn't see because we're just playing the audio is that, you know, he was on stage holding his phone and even before he like makes his point, there's a, there's a certain sense. It's like, Oh, that's weird. That he's holding his phone while he's talking. You don't know right away that that's the point that he's going to make. And I think the examples later you know, where, you know, like it's on the table and while you're talking to somebody, you get like a notification, you like lean over and look at it. And then you mm-hmm. tell them, like, I'm not going to take it. And he's like, oh, how magnanimous of you. Thank you for not. Oh, boy. Like We almost pat ourselves on the back for still having it face up, looking at it, and then telling the person, I'm, I'm not going to answer it. I think it's not all that groundbreaking because we know, you know that so much of our communication is nonverbal. That's and right. Yet with our phones out. And he, he makes the point. He's like, yeah, you know what? And flipping it over on the table isn't better. Like it being out <laughs> communicates to everyone in the room. And I just think like one of the things that, you know, my wife and I committed to in 2021 is to be way more intentional about Sabbath. Yeah. So from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, um, there's a couple of things we set in place, you know, we're like sh- sharing a really special meal, you know, like a prayer and a blessing and lighting a candle and kind of, kind of going a little more old school in that regard. But one of the things mm-hmm. was to, to have our phones just off for 24 hours. And it was amazing how wow. early into that 24 hours, you're like, I gotta grab my phone. I gotta, you know, like we're not yeah. even going anywhere. We were at home. We were like in our sweatpants. Like it wasn't even like, oh, I got to check the flight or I got to, you know, it's amazing how easily we can reach for these things. And I think Simon's whole point, not only just about being addicted to our devices, but about what it communicates to the people we care about, I just think is as timely as ever. Absolutely. And there is that part where this is why I want people to think about what they do. I remember having a meeting with somebody on our staff a year or two ago uh, and them uh, rightly expressing to me their frustration that I will check my phone at times, like even when we're talking. And I told them, I apologize. I said, I didn't even realize I was doing that. Like Mm. there is this subconscious thing that our phones, when you're so used to them, that you get that ding and you immediately look at it and it's almost like reflexive. Uh, And and it's having this effect on the other people. And there was no part of me that was like, man, I want her to feel like, you know, I've got more important things to do and it's not that important. But that was what I was conveying. And I had to apologize 
apologize to her and be like, I'm really sorry. Yeah. Uh, I, this is going to sound really dumb, but I didn't even realize I was doing it. Uh, and now I made a point when I met with her the next time I left my phone, in, you know, with my with my computer in another part of the church. And this is really important. It's the old uh, calm theory, communication theory that the message is the, the medium is the message. Yeah. Uh, and, and sometimes you just lose all your words and all your gravity with someone just by the fact that you show them. I don't really care because I want to see what's on my phone. Well, and that's what I think makes so much of what he says so pointed because we've all been on the receiving end mm-hmm. of somebody acting like that and thought, well, that's, that doesn't, that doesn't feel really, that's exactly my point. Like you, you know, you saying, oh, I didn't even realize that's how that was being conveyed. Um, good communicators, good leaders, I think will help not only like grow their own leadership, but help us see mm-hmm. some of the things that we do. Like, Hey, do you realize when you say this or do this or don't say this and don't do this, what that communicates to your team or your spouse, or your kids and, yeah, I mean, we all need help. We need other people yeah. to help us see the blind spots and something as simple as, you know, being really present. And I think, honestly, even on Zoom calls, I think it's even more tempting on a Zoom call to mm. try and like sneak a look at the phone under your computer's camera. You know, <laughs> we can see yes. we can see that your eye contact has gone somewhere else. I think when, <laughs> when we have lost so much of our nonverbal communication now more than ever, it's important for us to uh, to really make that a priority. So that's up at our Facebook page and the Twitter, the Twitter page, Twitter account. We'd love to know what you think. I think it was a, a really insightful minute and a half. Coming up next, though, one of Brian's favorite topics. We're going to talk about swearing. That's coming up yes. next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. up this hour. We're going to talk about swearing a little bit, and then we're joined by Aaron Menikoff, who wrote a new article for Nine Marks. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with the right Reverend Brian Fromm. Welcome to the show. All right. Karen Swallow Pryor. We've had her on the show now a couple of times, so I think she's officially friend of the show. Absolutely. I would would love to have her on to talk about this topic. I've heard uh, a a few other Christian scholars and thinkers tackle it, but I think I think she just does a wonderful job with this. I think she's a brilliant writer in general. She just happens to also have a brilliant mind. And uh, she wrote this for the Gospel Coalition. And the headline reads the real problem with four letter words. You want to get us into it? I do. She said, I think a lot about cursing. I suspect we all do. (laughs) And then she goes on to talk about how. Our, our public officials curse President Trump. She says Joe Biden's vocabulary can make a sailor blush. Here's one. She says both reformed and progressive pastors have exploited the power of shock effect by placing carefully planned obscenities into their speeches, while another Christian celebrity she links to slyly hinted at it. Social media feeds, movies, cable programming are, are littered with once forbidden words. Uh, the seven words George Carlin famously said couldn't be spoken on television are now according to one accounting, posted 22 times a second on Twitter. One can hardly be in an airport or a department store without overhearing someone on a cell phone casually dropping F-bombs. So because words, good ones and bad ones, she says, are the currency of my trade as an English professor, uh, Karen says she's had to consider cursing from theoretical and practical perspectives uh, as I've sought to help my students and myself think well about the curse words we encounter in literature, art, and life. Ultimately, the way curse words function magnifies the way all words function. The power is not in the letters, but in the context, intention, 
and effects. So that's kind of her setup for this. I do think this is an important conversation. I don't know how you feel when I was growing up, like you just didn't curse. Right. And now she is right. It seems like you hear it more on television. Uh, obviously social media. I, I still call me old school to hear pastors do it from the pulpit just drives me up a wall. Uh, because of the shock value and stuff. But cursing seems to be kind of more prevalent. Like it's like, ah, you know, I'm not a fundamentalist, therefore I curse. Uh, and she's going to take a little bit of issue with that and try to get at kind of the heart as to why this is important. Well, and, and so you said cursing every time there. And I think there's a big difference, and we'll talk about this a little bit later in the segment, between cursing and cussing. Um, Good point. Because I imagine what you were told not to do as a child was to not cuss, right? Probably, if, mm. I'm, if I'm guessing correctly. But I think in a lot of ways, like, don't we curse others when we sarcastically say when they're doing something poorly, oh, bless his heart? Isn't that a curse? That's not really a blessing. That's not cussing. That's not a four-letter word. But that's not honoring that person. You're sort of making fun of them underneath your breath. That's where I think she's going to get into huh. this a little bit because it is, it is you know, like when James talks about fresh water and salt water. And like, oh, we're, we worshiped on Sunday. Yeah, and yeah. on Sunday afternoon, we're trashing someone on Twitter and our – language technically is all fine for Christian radio, but the intention, right? She says the context, intention, and effect. I think that, I think that's a really, really helpful categorization. So she, the next heading here is three kinds of cursing. What is she talking about? Yeah. She says cursing falls into different categories. Strictly speaking, profanities are words that desacralize what is holy words, misusing the names of God and his judgments are profane. The worst of these are blasphemy. While profanities are related to the divine, obscenities are related to the human. This category of words serves to uh, coarsen bodily functions, whether sexual or excretory, she writes. Both categories are filled with a range of terms that vary in social acceptability from the mild euphemisms we use with kids uh, at the toilet to the harshest clusters of consonants whose very sounds degrade intimate acts. It's natural to find the ugliest sounding words most offensive. But a Christian ought to consider that even the gentlest euphemisms for taking the Lord's name in vain should give greater offense uh, than the coarsest sexual term. That's a little bit of what you were touching on there. Interesting. Uh, another category of curse words consists of those the cognitive scientist Steven Pinker calls, quote, abusive. These include derogatory epithets, epithets, that's how you say it, inflicted on a class of people. These terms aren't generally classified as swear words. But their effect in being offensive is the same. Mm. As with all curse words, acceptability of these terms can change over time. It's common for these evolutions to be dismissed as mere political correctness. But when neutral words are weaponized long enough, they become offensive in the same way any swear word does. Uh, they truly become curses, and the Christian should not utter them. Indeed, insulting others by using terms they find hurtful is a kind of profanity because it is an offense to those made in the image of God. I find that category, those categories really helpful. Uh, obscenity, profanity, abusive. And it kind of gets to what you said earlier uh, that I probably was taking way too narrow of a view of what she was saying, but instead uh, there's all sorts of words that fall under these categories. Well, and I think, and she's going to talk about it later, which we, we might not have you know ample time to tackle entirely, but I think what is difficult sometimes for us in the West in sort of a a modern post-enlightenment context to really grapple with because I I understand the appeal of like legalistic boundaries. Just give me the word doc of words I'm not supposed to say and I just won't say them. <laughs> yeah. But I do sometimes think we pat ourselves on the back because we think, well, because I haven't said any of the words that I was I was told I cannot say, um, 
I've I've now sort of danced around the list though and said really denigrating hurtful offensive things to people, but walked away with a clean conscience because like well technically i didn't say that word though and and god is found in the technicalities not the posture of the heart when really i think nothing could be further from the truth where we you know it's i mean you like to often reference when jesus to the pharisees says yeah you're like whitewashed tombs like on the outside Mm -hmm. you have all of the optics like whoever's your brand manager is crushing it right now inside rotten decay like it's not mm-hmm. you know i think our words in a lot of ways i think it was richard Rohr who said words create worlds like what we say create realities for ourselves and people and so you could you could say and we've probably both sat in rooms like this where someone didn't technically swear, like nothing that you said would get bleeped but gosh that was vile like i think of when you yeah. know paul in ephesians says let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouths the word unwholesome there's the word sepo which is where we get our modern word for septic, like a septic tank. And I think how how interesting that is that that like a septic tank is full of things that used to give life, but now is vile, right? Now is mm-hmm. wretched. And I think that that yeah. to me is a it's an interesting, helpful way to to think about it. Yeah. She closes out by saying at times scripture itself includes the apt and rare use of harsh words. The word dung, for example, occurs more than 40 times in the King James Version. And in Philippians 3, Paul describes the joy of his salvation using a term which in the original Greek is far coarser than what appears in most English translations. Uh, And then closing out later, she says, the Bible instructs believers to avoid using coarse language, but it is not only or most significantly through words that we profane the sacred or render obscene what God has created good. Writing to the people of God, the prophet Amos repeatedly affirmed that actions, not only words, profane the Lord's name. It is, after all, sin that is the real curse. I We are big fans of Karen Swallow Pryor, but this gives you a lot to think about. Like you said, you can legalistically just be like, well, I didn't say mm-hmm. those six words, I'm good. Uh, she really gives you a lot to think about. I'd encourage people to go check this out at our Facebook page. Yeah, and I think the way that, you know, Jesus often does where, you know, we, we, we just taught through the Sermon on the Mount where, like, a lot of times we'll walk away and say, well, I haven't murdered anyone, so I guess I'm good there. And he's like, yeah, have you harbored anger, though, towards someone? Like, he's, get, again, getting after intentions in the heart, and I think the same goes for our language. There's a whole lot more here, by the way, that we didn't have time to get to, so that's up at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. I highly recommend uh, you check that out, and we would love to know what you think coming up next how's this for a headline marxism social justice and christian expectations that's coming up next year in the common good on am 1160 hope for your life hi friends welcome back to the common good and i know it's dark and sad i do, are you feeling the effects at all of the the days getting a little bit longer or do we not start feeling that until February or March. I don't think we really feel that till March. Like I, I kind of get to March when it like you start to feel like uh, spring is almost here. Right now, it feels like okay, this snow is going to be here for a while. It's going to be cold. So, uh, yeah, no, I, I think it's at least March one before we feel that at all. You know, I, I was thinking about it. I mentioned earlier that you know we did a, a Sabbath starting at sundown, yeah. which we we might change to like just a consistent time because I, you know, of course, googled sundown time in Naperville, <laughs> sent it to the interweb, and it came back four thirty two, and I was like, nope, never mind. <laughs> that's de- <laughs> that's depressing. I didn't need to see that in writing. 
Anywho, <laughs> I figured we would talk a little Marxism and social justice. That sounds like fun, right? Oh, love it. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. So this, this is uh, written for Pathios Catholic by Henry Carlson. It says Marxism, social justice, and Christian expectations. Would you like to get us started, Brian? Frum? Yeah, just little Marxism is always fun here. It says uh, it's not a lot of Marx, just a little. Sure. It's common for those criticizing, he writes, social justice efforts to accuse those promoting social justice as being Marxists, either as socialists or as communists. Sometimes various Marxists continue in social justice causes when the cause connects with a Marxist desire or objectives. But that doesn't make social justice Marxist, for there are many more for there are more than Marxists involved with social justice activities. Indeed, while they can work with Marxists for common goals, many involved in social justice activities nonetheless denounce Marxism as well. Seeing the ideology also seeing Marxist ideology also gets many things wrong and would also end up promoting various forms of social injustice. Here's the money quote right here. I think the money line in this whole article, it says this, those who engage social justice come from a wide variety of beliefs and practices. They can work together when they seek for a common goal, but when their goals diverge, they likewise diverge from each other and go their separate ways. I think hmm. you could sum up this whole article. It's really long here at Patheos, and it's really going to dig into Marxism, racism, all sorts of other stuff, social justice. Uh, but but as I read through this article, I thought that's the spot to really kind of jump into this idea that I, I don't know if it's always been this way. Maybe it's a social media thing that's grown it, but but we love to link titles to people we either don't agree with to, to cut them down. Well, you do something I don't agree with. You're a Marxist. You're a socialist. You're a this. Right. You're a that. Uh, and I think this is a really helpful um, this is a really helpful uh, caution here that says uh, there's all sorts of different, quote unquote, titles of people who are concerned and interested in social justice. And it doesn't mean they all believe the same things. It doesn't mean they're all communists or they're all this or that. Right. Uh, and, and that that we can even work together with people that we may not ideolo- ideologically agree with. And then where we diverge, we go our separate ways. I think this is important. I think Christians, especially, we have to be really careful at just labeling people. Well, he's that, she's that. And just as a way of cutting them down, I I appreciate this idea, uh, even though it seems obvious that people engage in social justice, people engage in all sorts of different things for a wide variety of beliefs and practices. Yeah, I think that the next couple of sentences are actually helpful context. It says the fact that some of them are Marxists does not make all of them Marxists. And indeed, if one examined What was being said and done by all those working together for a common cause, that would be made clear. The reasons they offer for doing what they do will differ. Yes, they will have some things in common, the same way a tank will have much in common with an automobile. But the differences, when investigated, will show how and why many engaging in social justice cannot credibly be accused as being Marxist, even as an automobile cannot be credibly claimed as being a tank. Uh, Do you find that analogy helpful, that there Sometimes there will be similarities. And so if we go with the tank automobile uh, analogy or illustration, like, yeah, there's okay. So there's an engine and there's mm-hmm. steering components and there's a chassis. There's components here that are similar, but their purpose or their aim or their even maybe base functionality, uh, those actually look pretty different. But for this moment, they're actually working together towards something that looks very similar. Do you, do you think that's a helpful way of talking about it? I do. I mean, every analogy starts to break apart, but I do think it's helpful. There are things that are similar. Uh, and then there are things that are extremely different. Uh, so I do. And 
you've you i think have have banged the drum really well over the years that we've done this show uh by the way do you realize thursday i believe is two years i think it's our Mm -hmm. birthday that's crazy Mm -hmm. uh (laughs) i i think one thing that you've consistently banged is that hey um just because this church and that church or this church and that synagogue or whatever can work together uh or just because they might disagree on some very foundational things, does it mean they can't work together for the common good of their community, of their neighborhood, or whatever else? And even on these grand scales, when you're talking Marxism and this and that, that that it doesn't mean that you're always, that just because you might even disagree with the foundational tenets of something, doesn't mean that it's 100% at all points, like right, either 100% agree or 100% disagree. And so I think right. this is a helpful thing to say, hey, when it comes to things like social justice or when it comes to things like uh, wanting to, a, you know, a common goal, we can work across the aisle with people that we might disagree with, kind of your automobile or his automobile and tank metaphor, uh, that that we disagree with or we're very different. But that if there's something that needs to be accomplished that helps uh, that we both have in common that helps the community, it is well worth our time to reach across. But if we don't do that often because we label, well, we can't be with them or we can't link arms with them. Uh, and, and there's a lot of good work that goes undone because of that. He goes on to say that Marxism actually borrowed a lot from Jewish and Christian traditions. And he says many of the criticisms, many of the issues which Marxists raise, Christians can and should raise. Scripture is concerned with the plight of the poor and the oppressed. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount solidified that concern. Jesus warned the rich that what unjust joys they have now can and will be taken from them. Those who are mistreated and ignored will be the first in the kingdom of God. The oppressed find God is by their side and the oppressors either have to change their ways and repent or they will suffer the consequences of their oppression. So they're He's going on to talk a little bit about and it, it reminds me of an interaction that I think I have shared on the show that, you know, after I think it was the summer that, that ISIS was just making all sorts of headlines. I, I asked our office administrator, I just want to have coffee with as many mm-hmm. like local Muslim leaders who will have coffee with me. And what began really as sort of a, a an experiment that I didn't know how that would go, like if they would even take me up on that in a lot of ways, bloomed into a pretty beautiful friendship with a number of these leaders. And one of them, I'll never forget it. He was saying, listen, both of our holy books talk about uh, the call to love our neighbor. Like, isn't that something that we could do together? Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, oh, I so badly want to, and there's going to be a lot of hurdles to get, like, just even thinking about when I, when I, if I bring this up to our church board, like, hey, here's some ways that we think we can better love our city. And we actually wonder if for the sake of the city, for the sake maybe even of the common good, uh, what what would the posture be if we were, I don't know, feeding people who needed food and right next to us was people from the local mosque and the local synagogue? Like, mm-hmm. does that raise in your mind, Brian, concerns or red flags? Or, or do you think that we should see more of those types of actions and steps where we say, Hey, we're not, we're not trying to convert each other necessarily. And we're not trying to pretend that we're all ah, pretty much the same, but we are saying like, man, for the sake of our neighborhood, for the sake of our community, um, these things are okay for us to kind of link arms with. I think that's absolutely true. And in fact, uh, it, it, we just need to see more of it, right? Uh, did everyone that Jesus, we see him with right uh, in the gospels with Jesus pick, Hey, I agree with everything they're doing and I agree with everything they, but no, absolutely not. Uh, and and I think it would be such a great testament to our communities to be like, wow, look at people trying to help our community uh, 
even though it, they clearly don't agree with each other about some very foundational theological things. If all we're willing to do is to link arms and spend time with people who agree with everything we agree with and everything we think, we're going to be pretty lonely people. And uh, again, it doesn't mean just because I befriend somebody or do work with somebody that I'm signing on to everything they do, nor are they signing on to everything that I do or I believe. Uh, and I think the church could really learn a good lesson and, and kind of, uh, I think I would love to see the church, myself included, just kind of grow in this. Yeah, and I know that this article could potentially be controversial, but it is up on our Facebook page, and we'd love to know what you think. Where are we off our rockers? Where are we maybe missing a mark? Are there things that you would add to this or take away? All of that is on our Facebook page and our Twitter page at Common Good Talk. Coming up next, we're joined by Pastor Aaron Menikoff, who wrote this new article at Nine Marks. He says, thank God for the pie in the sky, why the heavenly-minded do the most earthly good. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm and we are thrilled to have on the show for the very first time, but hopefully not the last, Aaron Menikoff, who is the senior pastor of Mount Vernon Baptist Church in Sandy Springs, Georgia. Welcome to the show, sir. It is great to be here. Thanks for having me, Will and Ian and Brian. Our pleasure. Could you just take a a moment or two and introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, well, uh, I'd like everyone to know that I was born in Hawaii, so aloha. (laughs) And uh, I grew up in Oregon, where it rains a lot. Um, I moved to Washington, D.C. in the 90s and uh, worked on Capitol Hill for a little while. And that's where I fell in love with the local church. Mm. And it was in D.C. that uh, I decided I wanted to become a pastor. And so uh, I worked on staff at a local church there for a few years, headed off to Kentucky um, to go to seminary for a few years. And then in 2008, my wife, Dina, Uh, At the time, our three children and I, we settled in Atlanta, Georgia. So I've been pastoring Mount Vernon since 2008. Hmm. And then a few years later, we adopted our fourth child. And um, I am really thankful to be here and to be a pastor, though uh, I do miss, uh, I certainly miss Oregon, um, <laughs> but I am thankful to be here. Yeah, well, we're really <laughs> grateful for you coming on. We were we brought you on specifically because you had an article out at Nine Marks uh, entitled this, Thank God for the Pie in the Sky, Why the Heavenly Minded Do the Most Earthly Good. And the first line says, Christians are often accused of being so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. And we've all heard that, but your your contention here is that heavenly mindedness leads to the most earthly good. Could you unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, well, first of all, I think it's absolutely true that there's this uh, idea uh, among uh, not only unbelievers, but especially unbelievers, but I think even among believers who want to somehow uh, present this idea that if we if we if we spend too much time studying the Bible or we spend too much time sort of in small groups, you know, we're not going to be as effective or as diligent at, at reaching out both evangelistically and uh, with regard to mercy ministry, loving our neighbor, serving our neighbor. And uh, that's I have not only have I found that not to be true experientially, hmm. but. It's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches this really glorious um, connection 
between knowing God's word, longing for heaven, and serving both God's people and our community until we get to heaven. Hmm. And I think just a little unpacking of that goes a long way to trying to put an end to that uh, horrible cliche. Right. I'm I'm thinking of two different quotes listening to you speak. One comes from Karl Barth who said, um, do do your research with the Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other, sort of this like merging of two. But then I I think I'll get this right. C.S. Lewis says something like, aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in, but aim at earth and you'll get neither. Is that, is that mm-hmm. some of what you're, you're getting at when we actually set our perspective on, on eternal things first that actually makes us, I don't know, maybe better activists, better, better at being present in the here and now for the sake of the people around us? Well, the only thing that I would I, – I, I love really both of those, both of those, uh, uh, those quotes. Uh, but God's people have always been a people of the book, right, mm-hmm. a people of the word. I mean, just this morning I was in Joshua and, um, you know, it's noted there that, that Joshua uh, read to the people everything Moses commanded. And that's just what God's people have done for centuries. God speaks and they listen. And mm-hmm. as they listen to who God is, as they listen to what God expects of them, their attention is going to be drawn wherever God wants their attention drawn. Their attention is going to be drawn to the new heavens and the new earth. And the attention is going to be drawn toward um, loving your neighbor as yourself. Hmm. And so I know that connection that I just made between God's word and loving our neighbor isn't the exact connection of longing for heaven and loving your neighbor. But I simply want to make the point that God's people are to be concerned about what God is concerned about. And the only way to know what God is concerned about is really to put your nose in the book. And once you do that, you're going to find yourself um, able and desirous of having your cake and eating it too, <laughs> which is you're going you're gonna to love thinking about heaven and what's heaven going to be like. And, but you're also, gonna, you're also going to love thinking about, as, you know, as Francis you know, Schaeffer so famously you know, put it, how shall we then live mm-hmm. as pilgrims? Uh, on this earth. Yeah. Uh, Aaron, I wonder, and, and I get that the, the number one way is like you just said really well to be, to be men and women of the book, but I'm, but I'm wondering very practically people out there might be going, how do I focus myself on heaven? Like I'm just trying to pay the bills, right? I'm just trying to get through the day or whatever. What does it look like on a day-to-day level to be heavenly minded mm-hmm. and how practically can we grow in our heavenly mindedness? Oh, it's a great, that's a great question. Uh, First and foremost, it's very difficult, going back to scripture, it's very difficult to read the Bible faithfully without without encountering passages that are going to direct your thoughts heavenward. Hmm. Um, You know, you read through Isaiah and you're constantly confronted with the new heavens and the new earth. You're reading Paul and as he writes to the Thessalonians, telling them to be ready for the day of judgment. So just ordinary Bible reading where you're sensitive, not just to what's going on in the here and now, but what, what's going to go on in the future and judgment day and the new heavens and the new earth. That, that's one very practical thing to do. And it's, you know, it's, it's a new year. And so a lot of us are, are rethinking how we use our time. And so it's a good time to recommit ourselves to uh, the discipline and the grace of studying the Bible. Mm-hmm. You know, secondly, 
at, at our church here, Mount Vernon, uh, just this past week, we saw three of our members die. Mm. Uh, wow. One, uh, one, all of them were elderly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's just part of, of, of life together in a local church. I, I think most churches have the elderly. And I think in a world where we don't like to think about death, um, we're afraid of death, but the local church is different. The local church is filled with people watching one another die. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we, we encourage members in non-COVID years to attend the, attend the funerals. Mm. Um, those, the, there's nothing better than the funeral of a believer. Mm-hmm. Look, death is, is awful. Death is a result of the fall. But, but we all know that uh, for the believer, really, death is not the end. It's, it's just the beginning. Mm-hmm. And so just being part of a local church is a great way to, to fix your eye, uh, eye on heaven. So those are, those are a couple right. ideas. That's good. But one of the things I'm noticing, too, in your article is that you also mention you know, the, the ways that the church is called to be really present in meeting physical needs in the way that the church has historically um, what are, what are some of those ways historically for someone who maybe is thinking, yeah, I'm already team think heavenly. I don't think the church should be involved at all in helping over here or being a part of that project or this. What, what would you say to that person? Well, I would just say, you know, by all by all means, the church ought to be focused on its 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 central mission, its gospel centered mission of proclaiming a message that no other institution on the face of the planet is called to proclaim. And mm. that's the glorious news that Jesus is a perfect, crucified, and resurrected Savior. And historically speaking, those believers who cling to that truth find, the, the, find themselves living that truth out, not merely by sharing the gospel, but through acts of mercy and good deeds. And so the two need not be separated as sadly they Mm. so often are. That's such a good reminder. Thank you so much for being generous with your time. As we wrap up, where can people go to learn more about you or your church or, or any of your writing? Well, um, uh, our web, our church website, Mount Vernon Baptist church in Atlanta. I think it's www.mvbchurch.org. And um, on my bio, there's a list of, of, of articles that I've written. And I just put out a book for pastors called Character Matters, Shepherding in the Fruit of the Spirit, that I hope is a blessing to the church as well. That's wonderful. Our guest today has been Aaron Minikoff, Senior Pastor of Mount Vernon Baptist Church in Sandy Springs, Georgia. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. It's our pleasure. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. The final segment of the day. Always just a little bit sad, but fret not. We are back again tomorrow and every weekday from 4 to 6 p.m. Every weekday, is that right? Yeah. Are we being played other times that we don't know about? Wasn't there like a whisper at one point that they were going to maybe also add us at like five in the morning on Saturdays or something. We, we would kill it at that time. Yes. <laughs> that that's where our like target demographic really resides. The 5 a.m. Saturday. <laughs> yes. It probably only works because they're like sleep deprived. Like yeah. they're still up. And they're like, You've got to listen to these two crazy guys. 
Uh, you know what I haven't done today, Brian? Oh, believe me, I know. <laughs> you have not done the holidays for today. So, so let's get weird. Okay, I'm not going to even let you guess because you're too good at it. That's why. Um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so it is National Keto Day, so a, a tip of the keto to you. Are you a big keto guy? That's like a diet, right? <laughs> <laughs> So no, okay, all right. Uh, it's also National Bird Day. Okay, <laughs> I like birds. I, I'm a fan of birds. This is, this is why this segment is timeless. Every I could have said anything there, and your response is always okay. Okay, <laughs> cool. I like I, I like, like birds. birds. <laughs> all right, it's National Screenwriters Day. Oh, okay. Yep, there it is. Yep. The same reaction. <laughs> I got nothing. I got nothing for Screenwriters Day. And then you say that. That's exactly right. We can play back all of these. I know. I know. All right. This one, I think you'll be amped about. Now I feel weird for saying that out loud. Okay. <laughs> it's National Whipped Cream Day. Ah, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> what does that mean? I like whipped cream. Yes, on pie, particularly. Particularly, yes. Pie in the sky. <laughs> Uh, that's not going to make a lot of sense because that was an earlier was. article. And if you're just joining us, that's uh, that was a little, that's a deep cut. Yeah. Anywho, Go that's today's to holidays. Yes. Right. Go ahead and uh, listen accordingly. Okay. So I don't think we've read a Missio Alliance article for a hot minute. This is a couple weeks old, December 26th by Josh Funk. One of the things, and I, we've not officially done this, but I've, I've tried to kind of think of the final segment of the day as a little bit of a, a benediction of sorts. Mm -hmm. So like we'll have to start the show with some headlines and sometimes those can be really gut wrenching or heavy. And then we'll tackle some stuff that we feel like, you know, has some legs as they say. And then uh, I like to end the show with a little bit of, I don't know, just a, a thought or some kind of devotional mm -hmm. posture. I don't know. I don't know how to describe it, but I, I thought this was really well written and we've talked about Sabbath a couple of times on the show just today, actually. So it says Sabbath politics for a Weary World by Josh Funk. What's going on here? Yeah, Josh begins by saying it is a sad but unfortunate truth that much of the contemporary church has no intimation of what to do with the Bible's teachings regarding Sabbath. Couched in the dime store narrative of Jewish legalism, the standard approach to the Sabbath imperatives has been sort of, quote, casting off of Judaism's dead weight. Though surface-level scholarship appears to lend itself to such hasty dismissal, there are important nuances that have been missed in arriving at such a conclusion. Uh, so that's kind of the point in the, his beginning here is, hey, and I grew up this way, this idea, hey, great, we don't have to do the Sabbath anymore, right? Could you imagine being in the Old Testament and you had to stop doing anything from uh, you know, sundown to sundown. And, and man, that would be terrible. It, it, you know, praise Jesus that we don't have to do the Sabbath anymore. And then as you get older and you read more and articles like this go, no, no, uh, Sabbath is a gift. It's always been a gift. This idea of rest is a gift. And his point here is uh, that we miss out a ton in the contemporary church when we're like, nope, Sabbath doesn't matter anymore. Uh, and And certainly I talked earlier about things that have now that we've done this show for long enough. That, that we go back to specific things. And, and since day one, you've gone back to this idea of Sabbath, of rest, of, of this mm -hmm. gift that God gives us. Uh, and, and I think these are important, especially in this world that we live in now. And so he's going to get into, uh, he says, until we re-engage with the enormity of the Sabbath, nestled as it seems rather obscurely in the corpus of Scripture, we will not only fail to rightly handle the biblical texts that speak of Sabbath, but more seriously, we will fall short 
of the vitality it is intended to give to our contemporary expressions of witness and proclamation. So his call here is to get back to an understanding of Sabbath. And uh, I do, I want to ask, you've now mentioned a couple times that you and your family are essentially instituting Sabbath in some ways, or at least, mm-hmm. uh, you know, more heading much more towards what you call the traditional approach. Could you talk more about that? I find that fascinating, man. I haven't heard many people doing that. So as much as you're willing to share, like, not only what are you doing, but why are you doing it? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, really the article goes on to explain a little bit why arguably all of us should be at least considering it. Like I, uh, right before we started, I wrote something down, and I don't, I don't know if somebody said it before me. I'm sure somebody else did, but I wrote something like, at Sabbath, we remember that we don't rest from work. We work from rest. Mm-hmm. The idea that, you know, Adam and Eve were created on the sixth day and the first full day, then they Sabbath. It, it wasn't Sabbath for a lot of people is like collapsing at the end of an exhausting week. And then we just do it all over again. When the biblical narrative, I mean, Adam and Eve, the first humans begin with a posture of rest. I think that's, I think that's really significant later. Um, I think it was Abraham Heschel. He he said something like, "More than Israel kept the Sabbath, the Sabbath kept Israel." And what he what mm-hmm. I, what I think he meant by that is, it was one of the ways that they were sort of consecrated. That sort of like stepped stepped out of the flow of culture. Like Sabbath is a way of like standing in opposition to a culture that is wildly out of step with the way that God made us. And I think my wife and I had just been really convicted by that this last year. You know, there's. We're in the house a lot more, so we're even able to, like, observe each other's work habits and patterns. And, you know, I mentioned earlier, like, you know, phones being out or constant working or constant checking email, or sometimes even just constant wasting time. Like, it wasn't necessarily work, but it wasn't it wasn't restful. So it's a topic that I've cared a lot about. I was I was much better at Sabbath when I was a single person um, and I think have, you know, in the last couple of years really struggled to maintain a commitment to it. Now we're only, we're the first week of 2021. So yeah. like we're in by no means like, Hey, we're, we're a real success story here. We have no idea, but there's a lot of really wonderful resources out there. And and so things like simply calling the family together. I like lit a candle. Katie and I both kind of prayed a, a prayer of blessing over both of our boys. We read from the book of common prayer. Um, and we like marked it with a, like a, like a great meal. And then, we watched a movie together. So it's not like mm-hmm. anti-technology or anything, but we made the commitment to no phones for 24 hours. So we did a lot of reading, played out in the snow. We, you know, then broke the Sabbath of the sundown the next day. And we, you know, passed around sweet spices for them to smell. And we like prayed a prayer together. My boys are three and two. So they're like mostly still screaming and squirming all over the place. But we want it to be something that they really like look forward to. Like, oh, it's it's almost Sabbath rather than like, oh, my family's so weird. Like, <laughs> we, do this thing. we want we want to really ingrain it like, no, this is to be celebrated. This is like how God designed us to live. And that's I don't know for we got one under our belt this year, but it was it was yeah, great. That's awesome. And this article is going to talk about uh, and there's a lot to it. You can find it on our Facebook page, but it's going to say that the Sabbath uh, has always helped, you know, it helped the Israelites and it can help us look back. Right. God, God's faithfulness through time uh, that that. Uh, yeah, so it helps us to look back, and then it helps us to look up. Uh, he says it's it's not difficult then, in light of these things, to see the Christian community of Luke Acts embodying Jesus's fresh witness of the ancient Sabbath and Jubilee imperatives, this kind of looking up. And I would just kind of close it this way. Uh, he says, it, he ends the article this way, 
it is through this type of politics that the church must show the world an entirely different way of being human. I think that is a great encapsulation of how the church could be different, one of them being through these, at least, principles of Sabbath. Yeah, and like always, that and every article is up on our Facebook page. We would love to know what you think as someone who's kind of taking a deep dive back into this practice. I, I cannot encourage you enough. This year, set goals, set resolutions, do all that. But I think learning to rest well, learning to Sabbath and Shabbat to, to cease, to stop, is maybe just as important as anything else that we can start this year. And uh, we would love to know what you think. If you're kind of finding your own rhythms, share them with us over at the Facebook page. You can comment on the article or send us a private message. And with that, today's show is done, but we will be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.